this week on Dig Me Out. Your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, this week we're back with another roundtable discussion. It's one of our In the 90s episodes, Jay. I really enjoy these. These are fun because we, yeah. don't, we don't tackle a lot of like huge artists in yep. the 90s. So this gets a, an opportunity for us to dig into a big artist. Yeah, it's a, it's a chance to reflect, too, on how... Um how much the nineties changed the music industry and some yeah. of these legacy bands. So. so what's interesting with this one is Jay, we got a lot of negative feedback when we announced that we were going to do <laughs> this, this we episode. Did, we did. Yeah. Uh, it was quite uh, surprising. I did not expect the level of like dismissiveness slash yeah. vitriol that this band generated. Like, I don't think we got that when we did kiss like kiss is no. a pretty, you know, split down the middle you really like them or you think they're a bunch of you know goofy jokes we didn't really get that sort of negative feedback but this band whoa they they elicited some anger like i won't listen to this episode type anger which was really what else did people say besides that i'm very curious about this now yeah well it it wasn't pretty yeah no it wasn't pretty and I want to introduce those voices before we get into um, the hate that we have generated with this uh, with this particular episode. Joining us from Maine, where I can only imagine it's in the negative temperatures at this point in the uh, in the year. actually not. Oh, okay. Joe Royal, it's still back. been. Thank you. It's it's still been fairly nice here. We had a couple of days where it dipped down to uh, you had to put the heat on actually, but uh, mostly it's been pretty nice. So. Oh, okay. Well, that's that's good to hear. I'm sure it's coming, so enjoy what oh, you yes. have left. <laughs> <laughs> and then from the Clevesburg, north of uh, where I'm at, rejoining us once again. Uh, I probably since the Duran Duran episode, I think was the last time. I think that's right. Yeah, Annie Zaleski, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Let's get into some of the comments because I know <laughs> that those comments are over at Patreon. They're well. They're just they're brutal. So uh, Scott Hallgram said, "Did you lose a bet?" That was the uh, <laughs> that was the first one. Um, actually, you know, I gotta say, Facebook was the more brutal area for negative comments. There was a lot of uh, sort of confusion, I think, <laughs> there. Uh, not so much on on Patreon. Actually, Tara McCook said. Interesting. I'm actually excited for this conversation. 90s Aerosmith is just ripe for dissection. The good, there was some. The bad, and oh, so incredibly cheesy. And those songs were so ubiquitous, it was hard to dodge them. For example, a friend of mine broke up with his girlfriend right around the time of Nine Lives came out, and the method of coping was to play Hole in My Soul on repeat for that entire summer. I'm looking forward to hearing appreciations and lamentation, 
Limitations on the round table. Uh, that's interesting. I, I, okay. We'll have to get it, dig into hole in my soul a little bit then, I guess. And then Scott Hogan brought up the copious amount of compilation albums just from the 90s, to which we responded, Kiss has more. Um, Scott, <laughs> Kiss always has more. Scott Witt said, Scorpions are the kings of compilation albums. Surprised they don't have a best of greatest hits. That would be interesting to have a to ha- compile all of your greatest hits into a best of. So you picked, I guess, all the songs that were not on albums, but just on the the bonus tracks on greatest hits, and compile them into one greatest hits. That would be an interesting way to go. Uh, I liked most of what Aerosmith did at the beginning of the decade, and then they seemed it was more concerned about videos than all the Diane Warren songs. I don't know if there were multiple, but I know there's one that we're going to talk about. And then Jim Lozowski says, I'm not a big fan of Aerosmith outside their early work, but I got to say that the song What It Takes um, on Pump is not a bad ballad if memory serves. Janie's Got a Gun had the great David Fincher video and wasn't a bad song either. Sadly, they became dependent on the melodramatic power ballad, which culminated in one of their worst songs, I Don't Want to Miss a Thing. We all know the best reason to adore this era of Aerosmith is due to the induction introduction of Alicia Silverstone. Sorry to sound like a typical dude. I'm curious to hear what you guys have to think. Uh, what you guys think about some of the standout tracks from this era, since I don't think there are all that many. Wow. Mm. So we'll get into all that. I think we have to start, though. Uh, we were pre-gaming, talking about, uh, you know, Aerosmith. I, I'm not going to get into the history of the band, but they had a tumultuous 80s. Uh, sort of started out on a really negative uh path with um their nineteen eighty two album Rock in a Hard Place, which sold half a million copies. Uh I don't even think I don't think Tom Hamilton or Joe Perry play on that record. Am I right? Both those guys were no. out of the band at that point. <clears throat> they were yeah, they were both gone by then. And of course the original lineup being Steven Tyler uh Oh actually Joe... Tom Hamilton was there. I'm sorry, Tom Hamilton was there, but Brad Whitford was Brad there. okay, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um and then uh, they had their first quote-unquote comeback album with Done With Mirrors in 1985, and that, again, sold like a paltry amount. Um, I honestly, when I was looking through the catalog and you know revisiting records, I did not recognize a single song from, from either of those two records. Like, I, yeah, I yeah. don't either. That, that's like a total like blind spot. I always forget that they had records at that time. I'm like, oh, yeah, they, they were still kind of together. Jay, you grew up in a hard rock household. Uh, were yes. you familiar with that era of the band? Uh, are you talking about the pre-permanent vacation era? Yeah, the, that. No, I, they didn't really come back on my radar until permanent vacation, and then I went back and discovered the catalog. But the uh, Done with Mirrors era and uh, Rock in a Hard Place are, were sort of. I think Done with Mirrors was the least, uh, the most obscure for me. Uh, rock in the Hard Place has a, some decent tracks on it even though it doesn't have uh uh the two guitar players on it so you mentioned permanent vacation that's the that is the legitimate comeback album thanks to the inclusion of numerous uh outside songwriters uh that would be jim valance uh desmond child uh those were a couple of the people that they would start working with pretty regularly also credited on that is um holly knight who 
uh, is a co or a songwriter, uh, co-wrote songs such as Love is a Battlefield and The Warrior. And she uh, co-wrote with Jim Valance, uh, Ragdoll. And he was a songwriting partner of Brian Adams. So, because he's Canadian. So, there you go. So, this really begins, like, the both the resurgence and the trend that we would see with Aerosmith for, like, the next forever, which is the bringing in of outside songwriters. Now, who was the guy? I forgot whose name is. Like, the, the record exec who, like... John Kalodner. That's it. So who? What he was a? Didn't he have his own label at some point? Um, he revived the. Um, oh God, now I'm going to forget it. Portrait label, but this was in right around the time that they went back from being on uh, Geffen to Columbia, and I think he may he may or may not have had something to do with them getting back on Columbia. Oh, okay. But Por- Portrait was a label that was around in the '70s. Like Hart was signed to Portrait Records. Um, and he revived the portrait label probably the late nineties and it was very short lived, but like he signed a lot of eighties bands. Like, uh, there was a Dawkins album that came out. There was a Cinderella album that came out. There was, or I think it was supposed to come out. never did. There was a great white album. There was a rat album, you know, like all these bands that he had kind of worked with or had a hand in doing stuff with he was trying to get stuff going for them again but like all of them failed pretty much so that was pretty much the end of that label uh and then he had another label wasn't it one like sanctuary was that his label too <laughs> he worked at sanctuary yeah. okay like at the, towards the end of that that was another like label that was trying to revive a lot of these bands and you know still try to find commercial success with them gotcha I re- in revisiting Permanent Vacation, I didn't realize how many of the – I guess I kind of got Permanent Vacation and Pump mixed up <laughs> with regards to <laughs> singles. I don't know if you guys had this feeling too when you were going back. You're like, oh, that was – I thought that was on a different album because they came out fairly close to each other. There's only like a two-year gap between those two records. But uh, I didn't realize that like – I th- so like Dude Looks Like a Lady and Love on it, Love in an Elevator, I thought they were on the same record and they're not on the same record. They're – One's on permanent vacation, which is um, "Dude Looks Like a Lady," and then uh, "Loving an Elevator" is on on pump. But the thing that I noticed, and I don't, uh, I throw it out to you guys, is that there seems to be, especially with pump, this weird sort of like split between the typical Steven Tyler like sexual innuendo songs, and then they start to move into this like weird seriousness that feels really kind of. I don't know. It's jarring when you hear like um, Janie's got a gun next to, uh, you know, stuff like <laughs> love in an elevator. You know, th- those are just like completely different vibes. And it's uh, I don't know if that's like the effect of the uh, right here, right now effect with Van Halen of like those bands trying to take a more serious approach to sort of shed some of that 80s hair metal. I don't know. Um, yeah, I think like if you go back and listen to the '70s stuff, it's all pretty. I guess I don't know. I guess it would be more on the serious side. It's not until Permanent Vacation where they get, I feel like, to the next level of, um, you know, bad puns and like as they try to go pop, they get into this really overt sexual innuendo kind of stuff. I mean, not that it's not on the early records, but when it's done on the earlier record, it's almost like I don't know. It's like more of a a classic blues kind of take on that type of idea. 
Mm-hmm. But I I think the 70s stuff is just generally a little bit darker. And then when they as they emerge and they go kind of pop and then they try to blend the two together on pump, I think, yeah, you start to hear um, these interesting contrasts where, you know, semi serious subject matter and then completely goofy, you know, pun oriented metaphors where it gets. Yeah, you hear that contrast. But, but I think they were more, I don't know, I always think of their 70s stuff as being more on the darker side, lyrically, or serious side, than, and then Permanent Vacation is kind of where they start to really turn the corner to a pop band. I mean, there, there were clever, punny things on the early albums, too, things like Big Ten Inch Record, yeah. or um, even Walk This Way, you know, but, but it was still not as kitschy and so on the nose as it would become with the... Uh, albums on Geff in the late 80s and the 90s. Yeah, they were almost like they had a sense of humor to and them beyond. in the 70s when they did it. It was kind right. of like, oh, that's kind of funny. And then when you get to the permanent vacation and beyond, it starts to turn from like, oh, that's kind of cute and funny into like, well, this is half of what they do now. <laughs> and they're right. seemingly taking it serious. And I feel like that's like MTV's influence probably because, you know, especially with the late 80s, I mean, they saw all of these bands they influenced pretty much eclipse them. And so they were like, you know, it's almost like, well, how do we get attention? All right, let's be goofy. You know, like, I mean, the videos for like Dude Looks Like a Lady and all of those videos were just so over the top and like Love in an Elevator, you know, so it seems like they were sort of amplifying that to almost get attention. Because they were worried that, you know, that if, you know, if they didn't have a, a gimmick or, or kitsch or something like that, people wouldn't necessarily pay attention to them. Yeah. And that even it's, it's right. such a starker contrast when you incorporate the videos, because you think about the video for Love in an Elevator and then you think about the video for Janie's Got a Gun, which is a oh, yeah. <laughs> David Fincher. <Yeah. laughs> like there's a, those are two completely different bands that are like producing those songs and, and putting out those videos. But yet they're separated by one track. On an album, which, by the way, when you read now the songwriting credits uh, for these records, it says Tyler Perry. So it just like makes me chuckle that it says Tyler Perry. (laughs) Anyway, did you guys know that they got sued for the other side by Holland Dozier Holland for um, the melody of the, the chorus melody of that song ripping off Standing in the Shadows of Love, which was famous I guess Supreme song or not? Sorry, Four Top oh. song. Huh? No, yeah, I didn't actually, know that. I was not aware of that. They went to court no. and they had a. They had. If you look now, they have a songwriting credit on that song. That was interesting. I didn't like in looking up uh, info on this record. Discovered that. I. Uh, I did not know that, and I actually own the CD single for that song. So. <laughs> oh, you that's do. Their, <laughs> yeah, it's got. Um, it's got their version of Wayne's the Wayne's World theme. Wayne's World. Yeah, which is really good. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Yep. And it has that was why of, I bought it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's pretty they do a pretty awesome version of that song. They do. Uh there's another song on there that called My Girl that's pretty good. And then uh it's got three re- remixes of the other side which are uh, mostly forgettable. But uh yeah. Came out in nineteen ninety. Well that's a good point, Jay, because because a lot of these singles came out in nineteen ninety. So Love in an Elevator came out in August eighty nine and then F I N E Fine came out in September of eighty nine. Janie's Got a Gun came out in November of 89. And then What It Takes, The Other Side, and Monkey on My Back all come out in winter and summer of 90. So this was a, you know, this is one of those 90s, 80s, 90s cycles where they actually got like two years or or year and a half to uh, 
you know, put out singles, which obviously does not happen anymore. You get like two weeks of maybe of promotion on records, and then they're kind of like lost to the times if they're not, a, you know, Taylor Swift album. So that was interesting seeing that. And then, you know, the uh, I mentioned that the gap was only two years between Permanent Vacation and Pump. Then it's four years between Pump and Get a Grip. Now they do have, I mentioned, a number of compilations and stuff that came out. They had uh, the Pandora's Box, which came out around this time, which um, there was a Sweet Emotion uh, reissue. Remix. Yeah, that, that actually charted in the top 40, and then a Helter Skelter cover that charted in the top 25 from that uh, Pandora's box. Yeah, I actually have that, too. I bought it at Me the too. time, and it's got a lot of uh, obscure stuff on it, too, that um, they were working on around that that that, that um, Night in the Ruts, uh, or, sorry, Rock and Hard Place era, uh, stuff that didn't get released. There's some Brad Whitford solo stuff on it. There's a lot of good, like, obscure stuff on that. Yeah. So let's talk about Get a Grip. There's something wrong with the world today. I don't know what it is. Something's wrong with our eyes. We're seeing things in a different way. And God knows it ain't his. It sure ain't no surprise. Yeah, we're living on the edge. That's the album. I think that if you're going to talk about when it becomes divisive for Aerosmith in terms of their power ballads, this is the album. Now, actually, now what's interesting is that they were not the lead singles. Living on the Edge, I did not remember this, was actually the first single that was released for this record, which is crazy. They must have done a radio edit because it's over six minutes long on the album, 607. Well, there's there's a lot of like added extra orchestration and stuff that's on the album version that they definitely edited out of the single version. Right. But this again is another example of them doing a, you know, serious song. This reminded me a lot of right here, right now in terms of it being an, uh, a, you know, an issues song and this like attempt to go serious. And then you have that. And then the next song is flesh, which uh, could not be more in the wheelhouse of, Steven Tyler's um, sexual innuendo, not even sexual innuendo. Not, there's no innuendos in that song. It's just, <laughs> it's just it's what it is. Yeah, you're not like, oh boy, I wonder what he's talking about. Right. And it's covert with Desmond Child, even. Yeah. They, mm. You know, he brought it go. out of him. Yeah, he did. This has a lot of co songwriters. You've got Valance and, and Child back on Shut Up and Dance, Jack Blades and Tommy Shaw our co-songwriters on that. Um, Taylor Rhodes, who has a number of songwriting credits. Um, he's got, he's on this record. Uh, Richie Supa, who I believe was a, a good, one of the guitarists who filled in for um, Joe Perry when he left. 
He filled in for the tours, but never, uh, he may have played on the albums, but he was never like a permanent member of the band. But they had been longtime friends with him. They covered the song Chip Away the Stone, which showed up first on live bootleg in a live version. And then it was the B side of, I can't remember which single it was, but the, the studio version was that. And that was on one of the many compilations that came out in the late 80s. I think it was Gems. Volume one or volume two had that on there, but they had they'd known him and worked with him for a long time. And revisiting this record, I'm gonna throw this out here. Uh, this is probably one of the prime examples of an album that is bloated thanks to the CD era. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't know if you guys got a chance to actually like go through track by track on this record, but there is a lot of filler on this record and long songs that. Don't need to be long. Well, and what's weird too is that, like, I found an interview with John Kaladner, and he said he made them re-record the whole album completely because apparently that it was supposed to be released in 1992, but he heard it and was like, it wasn't didn't have variety and didn't have like a radio-friendly song. Wow! So you can only imagine what it sounded like. It did this. It did. He would do the same thing with the next album, too, which also, same thing, delayed it by a year. It was supposed to come out in 96. Didn't end up coming out until 97. Well, we'll get into it later, but there's there's an album that was supposed to come out in the 2000s, in like 2006, and it came out in 2012. (laughs) So... But yeah, you're you're right. I mean, this was a record that definitely, like, it was of that period of like, hey, we can squeeze a whole bunch of music onto a CD and really give people their money's worth, so that's what we're going to do. Yeah, and I feel like this is so single heavy as well. I don't know if you guys got that that feeling God. like the album tracks are really really album tracks. Really album yeah. tracks. They pale and, like you can see that they clearly like focused in on what were the singles songs and what were the, you know, the album tracks. And I read if you go to like the Wikipedia page, I guess they did there's like at least like a dozen songs and maybe that's those are those sessions that you were talking about anywhere he had them redo it but like there are lots of songs that they had titles for that just did not get used i think legendary child is one that got used on the 2012 album as the single for that record but there are just all these tracks that uh i can't i i gotta imagine they're gonna come out someday i don't know what the status of the band is really at this point well they did put out some like some of the shaw blade stuff came out on like the didn't it on like the beavis butthead and there was a single for living on the edge that had a couple shaw blade songs on it and there were there's at least two or three that i found that i'm I'm guessing were written around this time and this is obviously when cd singles were big and they were (laughs) right like i mentioned like the one i bought had like Oh yeah, two unreleased songs on it and a bunch of remixes. So they were putting a lot of unreleased or you know previously unreleased stuff onto these singles. Yeah, these definitely. Uh, I forget. I don't have it handy, but I know. Uh, I think it's the "Living on the Edge" single had at least two or three songs that weren't on the album. Yeah, and it actually had the demo version of "Living on the Edge," which is pretty interesting to hear how different it is from a production standpoint. <laughs> Going back to this record, did it? Well, I guess I don't know what your original opinions were on on this record. So tell me, uh, what was your? Did you listen to this record when it came out? And has your opinion changed over the years, negative to negatively or positively, <laughs> re-listening to it now? 
Joe, I'll start with you. Okay, when, when this album came out, I was all about it. I, I liked it. I, I still have. I bought the deluxe edition CD that came in the faux cow skin cover because um, I had the deluxe edition version of Pump 2 that came in kind of like this leather-bound book cover type thing. So I was all excited for it, and I liked it quite a bit when it first came out. And then about midway through the decade, I just got... I think like a lot of people, I just got so burned out on Aerosmith because they were so ubiquitous. And it was just like, oh, I don't care if I ever hear these songs again. But over the again, over the years, too, there would be certain tracks that would like every now and then you, a song would come on, like living on the edge. I'd hear it and like, hey, that's, that's a pretty good song or, or amazing or crying. And and like this, you know, you'd be in the right mood to hear it and think, yeah, this was a decent song. So I have a mixed view on the album. I, I don't listen to it. I don't pull it out and listen to it all that often anymore. But when I hear certain songs, I, I can appreciate them still. Annie, what about you? I also was a massive fan of this album when it came out. I had a t-shirt of the with the album cover on it that I would wear in junior high. And I thought I was like so badass because I was like you know, wearing this Aerosmith shirt. And I loved it. Like I thought the record was great. And I, you know, probably because, I mean, I don't know, I was like 14 or 15 when this came out. So I was just like, this is blowing my mind. This is great. And I was a huge MTV fan. And so everything kind of about it totally like made sense. And like now, I mean, I think I'm very similar to you. Like I got so burned out on the singles. Like crying's a great song, but I never need to hear it again. And like, I, I don't like crazy. I never want to hear that again. Amazing. I'm like, ugh. but like the stuff that you don't hear that often, like eat the rich and shut up and dance and even like get a grip and fever. Like those are good songs. I feel like the production is a little bit glossy. Like mm. I'd be really interested to hear some of these songs if there was some grittier production and maybe kind of like a little bluesier and kind of play that up. Because now when I listen to it, that's why it's almost hard for me to listen to it, is that it just sounds so 90s and just so almost dated. That's the thing, too. Like even that this whole era of Aerosmith, starting with like permanent vacation through like the Geffen years, we'll just call it. All this stuff, to me, I agree with that. It sounds so glossy, and it's because of it, it sounds far more dated than their original 70s output does. Totally. Yeah, I noticed that, too, that there's, production-wise, there is all sorts of stuff going on. Like, they are they layered a lot of little things here and there. It seems like that would only get worse from, from yeah. this point going forward. Foreshadowing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is... um. This is peak Aerosmith for me, like in terms of maybe not their. I'm not saying it's their best work, but for my my fandom, this is when I'm like the most into the band. Real uh, rediscovering them in the '80s, and then really getting into the Pandora's box, and then going back and getting into the '70s records. So then when this comes out, it's you know a big deal for me. And, and I agree with you guys. Uh, at the time, I was really into it. I think I saw them twice on this tour. It feels like they toured forever on this record. Yeah. Um, 
I liked Living on the Edge when it came out. I, th- I still think it's a really good song. Uh, I think Eat the Rich is a good song, um, and I'm with Annie. There's some of these album tracks that maybe even at the time I didn't love, but now when I went back and listened to it, I thought, wow, these are actually pretty good. I like the experimentation on some of the um, production, like when some of the per- um, percussion stuff they do in this record I like. Um, there's some nice te- guitar texturing. For me, really, the what the biggest problem with this band started in on uh, permification when they started to bring in the horns, um, mm-hmm. and you hear that on this record too. And I think that's their that is probably the biggest mistake they ever made, and they continue that through this record for sure. I think it's less on Nine Lives, but on this record is the uh, you still get a lot of that, like either keyboard horns or whatever that is, and it's just not necessary. There's so much cool guitar stuff that Brad Whitford and Joe Perry do that you don't really need the horns um i do like the addition of the piano though and the harmonica and those types of instruments but uh, i'm not a big horns guy and um that's probably the thing for me that dates a lot of their records the most from uh the mid 80s through the 90s you know what that reminds me of is that on the first black crows record the the cover of hard to handle there's like there's the one edit of that song which is just the rock edit and then there's a horns edit version and every time i hear that i go why would you have ever done this like why would you ever (laughs) let this get out it's it's so cheesy sounding but then i wonder if like they did that if the if the record label did that or because of the fact that aerosmith had had some success with horns in singles i don't know if that was the reason or if they were trying to pay some homage to the like you know, this, the original 60s soul version or what have you. I mean, they definitely, I mean, they own that kind of sound. I mean, they yeah. had their 70s sound, which was totally unique. And then they did that thing in the 80s where they started to introduce these horns. And I mean, it was unique. It was just not very necessary. So I, I could see a lot of other bands trying to, or at least record labels trying to push bands to try that because it, obviously it was commercially very successful. Right. So uh, also around this time, this I got to just mention... This is the same year of Dazed and Confused, the movie. And I'll be honest, I was not a huge Aerosmith fan. I didn't even really connect what I was hearing on the radio to what they had done in the 70s. Yeah. It just it didn't even like occur to me that it was the same band. So like when I when that movie opens with Sweet Emotion, I'm like, oh, this is a kick ass song. Like, what is this? (laughs) Like, oh, that's Aerosmith. Wait a minute. That's the same Aerosmith. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. His yeah, voice I, is so distinctive. I don't know how you can not connect. Yeah, the but two. if you listen to Dream On, like he doesn't sound like that. Oh like, uh, well, yeah, yeah. The first record, he sings a little different. He does like a Kermit the Frog kind of voice, but after that, everything sounds the same. Well, it's funny because like REM um, covered "Toys in the Attic" on Dead Letter Office, and so around the time I was really kind of getting into them and that record in the '90s, they covered that. I'm like, oh, that sounds pretty cool. And I think I got like "Toys of the uh, Toys in the Attic" out of the library or something. And I was like, wow, this is like, because it was so different sounding. Mm-hmm. And so that was like, I did end up going a little bit backwards. But I think I was just like into like the hits, like Sweet Emotion and Dream On and stuff like that. Yeah. See, I'm, I'm much more old school. I actually started out with the 70s stuff when it was still the 70s. Like, right. I'm, old, I'm two hours from Boston. So Aerosmith was huge here. Right. And uh, like I, w- I was at the show that Steven Tyler passed out. That was my first Aerosmith show was the one he passed out at like 10 minutes or 20 minutes into the set when they were for a night at the ruts. That was here in Portland. You know? So uh-huh. 
and then saw them on the, the comeback. They did a comeback tour in 84, 85, right before Dunwood Mirrors came out. And uh, every, uh, probably every, every album since then, up into Nine Lives, you know, I saw them all, every time they came to town. So, hmm. Well, since you mentioned it, there's like a there's a gap. There's a four year gap between uh, Get a Grip and Nine Knives. As you mentioned, there was some issue. There was supposed to be an album a little bit earlier, but again, they they had well, they had some internal issues. Um, I guess Joey Kramer had gone through some personal stuff and actually like left the band for a while. And Steve Ferrone, the drummer who has played with, well, he replaced Stan Lynch in um, the Heartbreakers, but he was also mm-hmm. in the Average White Band. He was actually the drummer for a while in the studio, and then I guess they didn't like what they got with him. So, and that's when Kramer came back. Um, so that sort of delayed some of the, uh, you know, some of the momentum that they had. Um, and 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 Steven Tyler and Joey Kramer have always had been at odds because yeah. Steven the, Tyler's a drummer, so they they're constantly at each yeah. other. Watch the making a pump documentary for everything you need to know about that. <laughs> yep. yep. <laughs> oh really? Do they get? Are they oh, getting yeah. at each other? Oh yes. <laughs> yeah, because Steven Tyler is very opinionated particular. about drums, in particular about drums. I mean, he plays like I think he has formed some of the beats and some of these songs and stuff. So well. Yeah, I think uh, I remember seeing, I think it was on MTV, maybe, where he talked about writing Pink, which I think he wrote that on drums. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think I think that he started with the beat and then uh, Glenn Ballard and Richie Supa are also credited on that song. So maybe they assisted with like melody and lyrics and stuff like that. But um, I remember fairly vividly of that being on TV, him talking about probably around the time when this album came out they were probably you know doing a special on it or something Pink, it's the color of passion Cause today, it just goes with a fashion You know, this is a unique situation. I mean, this was a band completely crapped out by the mid eight by the early eighties, and then has risen all the way back up to the top again in an era where they shouldn't have. I mean, we're talking about Aerosmith in nineteen ninety three. This is prime Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains era, and you have Aerosmith, this seventies rock dinosaur, dominating MTV radio albeit maybe not the same radio as those bands i got to imagine like it was probably a little bit difficult to follow up that record based on having you know four huge singles having a massive amount of mtv play for a number of years yeah they they toured so long for get a grip and that sort of hit right in that sweet spot of alternative that 
they were kind of outside of what was going on and, and, and successful despite it. Like they just did their thing during that time. And they were as huge as ever, like you said. It's very different. Like there wasn't a whole lot of bands um, that you could say that about that were kind of unfazed by at that time. Like you could tell, you know, they hadn't changed their sound. They were doing what they did. It didn't seem contrived. Um, and they were still incredibly successful. And then also, you know, in terms of following up a massive record, this kind of reminds me of going back to the Metallica um, discussion when we did Metallica in the 90s. They have a massive game-changing album at the beginning of the 90s and then tour on it for a number of years and then they have to follow it up and, you know, you can debate the merits of Load and Reload. Listening to this one, like, this sounds like a band that's, like, searching for either, like, a new sound or trying to fit in in some way. Like, there's a lot of sounds on this record that I didn't... Take a song like Taste of India. I I don't know what they're trying to do with that song. I mean, I I guess they're just trying to be a little bit more experimental. But I just had a. It sounded like Zeppelin to me, like that. That was them doing their cashmere kind of thing. This is a like I got so. Um, I was just so saturated by the time the Get a Grip era ended that I I actually it's weird like I was as into the band I had ever been in around 92 93 but by the time nine lines came out I was so tired of them because yep. of crying and crazy that I never even bought this record like I, I sort of like hit a peak with this band and just completely plummeted to total apathy like I could care less um at the time yeah so so revisiting this it was kind of fresh for me like i had i mean i had heard the some of the singles but a lot of the album tracks i had never really heard at the time and plus you know when you're talking about get a grip you said there were like four singles but that's just the billboard hot 100 singles there were six singles released to radio and all of those were in the top 10 of the modern rock tracks or top five there were like four of them i think were number one so the you know six tracks off this album got heavy heavy airplay on radio right and yeah. i think what if i'm right uh i'm pretty sure it was it's still their biggest selling album of their catalog was get a grip so here, how are you gonna i mean you just did pump which was your biggest selling album then you follow that up with get a grip which eclipses it where are you gonna go from there you know there's a lot of pressure on you right yeah, how do and you... you just changed record labels. Yeah, that's well. And then here's the other thing: you've got so you get. I, I actually, you know, revisiting falling in is falling in love is hard on the knees. It's a solid single. Hole in my soul. I don't. To me, that did not. In terms of what they had done with ballads on permanent vacation, pump, and get a grip, I didn't feel like it stood up to those songs. Pink, while it is uh, troublesome, I guess you put it, in terms of maybe Stephen Teller's intentions with that song, it's a really interesting, like, sonically, it's a different song for them. Like, it doesn't sound like anything that sort of came before. It's almost, uh, I, I had this weird comparison, it's almost like uh, Numb from U2. Mm. <laughs> That's a good one. It's Good a, comparison. It, it's just a weird outlier that doesn't really go with anything else. 
and my memory was always that that was on uh, just push play. I was kind of when I went back and revisited this record, it was a little bit surprised that it was actually on this record for some reason. I, I thought it was later. Right. That was the song to me, too, that I was just like, I'm done. You know, like, yeah, I, don't know what, I was just <laughs> totally. so turned me off. I'm like, yeah, I, I'm out. I'm out. Yep. <laughs> no, I'm the same way. Like I, yeah, I was so burned out. I didn't buy this record. I hated pink. I still don't like pink. And yeah, I just, I just either. had such a, like a visceral reaction and visceral negative reaction to that song. I'm like, nope. And like, I was looking, I cannot believe how many singles were actually released from this record. And I, I didn't even remember half of them. Like I was, mm-hmm. I think they had six or seven as well released to radio. I was like, Oh, nine lives was a single. Really? All right. You know, full circle. Like I had no idea. And that's what's interesting about this record for me is as I went back and revisited it, I think it was the album tracks that really stood out as what I liked. Because there's some moments on here where they get to the kind of sound that the you know mid the late '70s stuff had. So, like to me, attitude adjustment is a good example of that. Of a, I just that's just that approaches classic Aerosmith to me, and something's got to give. And Crash has this really cool, like almost punk energy to it. It's weird in that the the album tracks on this are probably stronger for me than Get a Grip, at least will, in, in retrospect. I completely agree with that. Going back and listening to it again, it's like the singles I couldn't stand them, but the the album tracks were like, hey, this is pretty good. Mm-hmm. So while the singles are coming out for this record, the many of them that you mentioned, Annie, there's a song that came out that is not from this record, but it was a single that. Is probably the most de- de- divisive song in the <laughs> Aerosmith era. Uh, I don't want to miss a thing. Written <sighs> by Diane Warren for the Armageddon sound. Well, it wasn't written for the Armageddon soundtrack. It was actually written before that. It was I guess it was written during a period where it was going to be given to someone else, and then they she had just kind of come down, come up with the idea based on watching a Barbara Walters special <laughs> for the for the hook of the song and was like working out with somebody else. And they were like, and it ended up getting into the hands of Aerosmith because Liv Tyler was in Armageddon and they got, I guess, asked to perform a song. Um, and there's a couple other songs that are used in the actual movie. Um, this being of course a Michael Bay joint. So there's lots of opportunities for big classic rock songs to be integrated in there. It's not unusual for Aerosmith to work with an outside songwriter so I don't know why I don't know that that's the reason why it gets so hated on. Did you guys spend much time on this track? I hadn't listened to it. I I I'd avoided it purposely for many years. The, the, the only time I spent on it was uh, there's a version of it called Animal Crackers <laughs> that is really bizarre because it includes like Ben Affleck quotes from the movie that I don't remember that are really strange. 
and I'm like, <laughs> it's set against the, the, uh, the backdrop of this super melodramatic ballad. And, uh, it, it's just odd, but that, that was the only time I spent with it. It was just listening to that version of it. It doesn't sound like Aerosmith. Like anybody could be playing that song. I think that's my problem yeah. with it. I don't even, is there like any, did Joe Perry even play on that? Like, is there any <laughs> Joe Perry on that song? Not really. I'm sure he played on it, but no. I mean, that's what, to me, what makes Aerosmith is a guitar interplay between Brad Whitford and Joe Perry. So if you don't have that, to me, it's not really truly an Aerosmith song. It's a Steven Tyler song. Well, right. yeah. according to yeah, according to Joey Kramer, the band played on it. He said, when we first heard the demo, it was just piano and singing, and it was difficult to imagine what kind of touch Aerosmith could put on it and make it our own. But as soon as we began playing it as a band, then it instantly became an Aerosmith song. Hmm. And is that the thing? Did he say that? And like, what? Like, when did he say that? Like, is he really? Is he trying to convince himself of that? Like, I don't remember that. <laughs> like at all. I, I think that's a good point. Like, if they, I mean, they could have totally released this as like, you know, Steven Tyler's solo song. But it, oh, wouldn't got, it wouldn't have gotten nearly the biggest splash if they hadn't put Aerosmith on it. Because, like, oh, I mean, this this song, it's just it's just so syrupy and, like, and sweet and, ugh. Cloying. Yeah, it is cloying. And, you know, it's Diane Warren. I mean. Ugh. Yeah, but it's their only number one mainstream charting song. I mean, it charted number f- one through four across the country or across the world, I should say. You know, whether you're talking about the UK or Australia, I mean, it is, it dominated in a way that probably, I mean, I can only think of maybe the Celine Dion song from Titanic. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say that. It, it, this was the era of that. Yeah, you know, The big saccharine ballad from the movie soundtrack. But at the same time, it's like a dagger in the heart of a band who had like really passionate diehard fans. You know, it's just strange juxtaposition of, well, yeah, it's your most popular song ever, but all your real fans absolutely despise it. Yeah. It's, <laughs> so, like, it's such a weird, like, reality to have to live in after that. Like, how do you manage that? It's it's kind of what happened with Cheap Trick and the Flame. It's like they finally have a number one hit with a song they didn't write that's ballad. And, like, half their audience, or more than probably, yeah. despises that song because of that. But it's their only number one hit. You know, mm-hmm. so yeah, I I think that maybe there's like a sort of based on reading their history, this sort of like perverse enjoyment that they get out of making the wrong decision <laughs> is the only way that I can put it. <laughs> um, I think about the fact that Steven Tyler became a judge on American Idol, and like barely even mentioned it to his bandmates until after he was actually like announced on the show. And like, I don't know if it maybe it's Steven Tyler that's this way, but he seems to like doing things that are completely outside of what Aerosmith is supposed to represent or do. Like he seems to like well, tweaking people. He starts to overtake the band at this point to me. Like the, they were always a Jagger Richards kind of dynamic where Joe Perry is always offsetting his, personality and bring it back to like this land of credibility um and edginess and to me when they did this song it 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 all of a sudden become the steven teller show and the rest of the band just i think has 
my opinion, has kind of gone along for the ride because it's an easy paycheck and like they still like playing probably. Mm -hmm. But the whole like balance between Joe Perry and Steven Tyler to me after this song was gone. Like it, it just doesn't exist anymore. And I mean, I think it's pretty telling now. I mean, you have, you know, Steven has been like trying to get his, well, his non-existent country career off the ground. And he's been doing, you know, solo shows and yet Joe Perry's and Hollywood vampires yeah. and he's doing solo stuff like the stuff that he's doing is still pretty like if you're an Aerosmith fan, you can still pretty much get into it. Yeah. And like, you know, Steven, like, I mean, he's still like his, his show. He played here and he drew very, very well, you know, because he definitely has his core fans. But like, you know, I don't really want to go see him do like folk versions of Aerosmith songs. <laughs> I want to see like the band rock out. And I think that's what's frustrating, too, is I saw them when they toured with Cheap Trick. When God, I don't even know when that was, like a bunch of years ago. And they're still, like, really energetic and good live. I mean, they definitely don't hit the 70s heights or even, like, in the 80s or 90s heights. But they're still, like, a, a really, like, raucous rock band. They do the blues stuff and they do the kind of the rock and roll stuff. It's like this, like, I don't want to miss a thing that didn't even exist or didn't even happen. Mm. And so that's it's almost it's kind of weird in that respect mm. too. That is weird because it's so important in terms of their success on a right. mainstream level, and yet it's almost like they have to ignore that it happened, <laughs> like this uh, anomaly that's in their catalog. Um, it, you, when you mentioned the country stuff that Stephen Tyler's doing, it reminded me somebody posted a video the other day of. Uh, David Lee Roth doing like a bluegrass version of Jump. Oh, <laughs> oh man. No one wants to see that. Nobody <laughs> needs to see that. Stop. Stop doing that. If he wants to do Louis, Louis Prima songs, I'm fine with that, but just don't reinterpret Van Halen as <laughs> bluegrass. Um, so this takes us to the end of the decade. They would put out the following year, uh, not the following year, they would put out in... Um, 2001 sorry uh just push play which is i don't know i i revisited it a little bit just to because i never listened to that record and i couldn't remember uh i remembered the single with the jaded uh, yeah i didn't recognize anything else on this record from being played i have to say i have never listened to anything past this i don't know if you guys have listened to, i mean before, before i sampled everything before the show, but I'd never checked out Honkin' on Bobo or the other record that came out in 2012. Um, you know, music from another dimension um, was a little bit, again, it was actually a little bit too long. Had they cut it down and maybe cut like five or six songs, it would have been a really kind of like dynamic mini album. Cause I was, you know, and cause it was, there was some, I, I don't remember offhand cause it's been a while since I've listened to it. But I was actually very surprised because I had very low expectations. Because Honkin' on Bobo, I think it's okay. I think I listened to it maybe once, but I, I don't remember it at all. Yeah, we're, it's kind of like the Stones' last album. It's like, how yeah. how often are we going to listen to this record of old blues covers? Totally. You know? Right. Well done, but how often am I going to want to listen to it? We skipped the uh, A Little South of Sanity live record. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, it was another record that I remember coming out, but didn't listen to at the time. My, my only impression is that, uh, you know, they're good enough live versions of the songs, but, um, they're, they're kind of slow. 
like usually when you hear a band play live, they're always a little fast. But some of these songs, they they're like slower than the studio versions. It's kind of bizarre. <laughs> I'm not sure what's going on there, but you're like, are are you guys okay? You sound. <laughs> they were tired. It was a long. Yeah, you sound a little tired. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that might be it. It might just be that they were getting up there already at this point, and you know, you can't uh, you can't plow through things like you are when you're in your 20s and have you know, all of Bolivia up your nose. So it's a little bit different (laughs) experience. So that takes us to the end of the decade. And we need to figure out, did Aerosmith survive the 90s? Or did the 90s consume Aerosmith? I don't know that the musical landscape, like with Van Halen, I don't know that the musical landscape changed the band in any way, but they seemed to struggle Going into the 2000s, I, I, what's everybody's uh, verdict on that? Annie, I'll start with you. Did did uh, Aerosmith survive the 90s? I, I think they did, and I think it's actually because I don't want to miss a thing. I think because they had that mm. hit that kind of that gave them that little push that, you know, that they sort of got a free pass for a little bit. Because just because they had that hit, they were able to sort of kind of milk that. And but beyond that, you know, but had they not had that hit, I don't know. I mean, because you're right. Like I remember, I like Jaded. I think that was actually a pretty good song. Mm-hmm. And I kind of yeah, remember like you know, just push play the title track. I was like, oh, that's pretty good actually. But I mean, you look then in the rest of the decade, there's nothing going on. And so I think that you know they had that. And Armageddon, I think, was you know so popular. You know, if everyone read it, they heard that song. So it was one of those inescapable things too. So I think they actually they they did survive. Maybe a little worse for the wear, but I think it did sort of you know let them sort of be a heritage act or the heritage act they are today. Joe, what about you? I, I pretty much agree with Annie. Uh, the it's not so much it, it, it's a if they didn't they were hurt more by the change in the industry. Like everybody was like all you know. Napster, everybody else, all of a sudden, everybody's just downloading records and not really buying them. I mean, they still had top 10 albums. Just Push Play, number two. Honkin' on Bobo, number five. Music from Another Dimension, number five. But the album sales weren't what they were, even though they still managed to get those numbers. But uh, I, I, Annie pretty much hit it on the head. You know, if it wasn't for I Don't Want to Miss a Thing, they may not have been able to transition the decade. But, like, look where they went from the 90s. They started out the decade strong, then alternative music becomes really, really big in you know, by the mid '90s. It's, it's it's the thing. So who who are they going to work with then? Uh, oh, what's the biggest record of the mid '90s? Alanis Morissette's "Jagged Little Pill." Who did she work with? Glenn Ballard. Okay, let's work with that guy. And that's right. who they worked with mm-hmm. primarily on Nine Lives. Didn't did it work for him? Debatable, but there you go. And one note on they read about music from another dimension. Speaking of like the changing landscape and, and downloads and stuff like that. When they, uh, I guess they put up music from another dimension up on their website before it was slated to come out. So you could preview it and they accidentally put up the MP3s with no restriction. Oh no. And so everybody, I guess you could just download the whole album for like a brief period of time. Like they leaked it themselves by accident or supposedly. But that album has only sold 185,000 copies, which shows you that what that number five got you in in 2012 versus, you know, 
the number two in 2001, they, it's 1.2 million that they've sold of that record. The uh, the charts are a, a changing there. Uh, Jay, survive or nigh? Well, commercially, yes. I mean, they're still a band that can go headline or co-headline and do just fine. Um, it, se- it seems like they're touring North uh, South America constantly. Um, <laughs> uh because I've, I've heard they can't get insured here in North America. That's that's why they're constantly touring South America. Creatively, no. I think this, in a way, we talked about this with Van Halen. Like, the 90s, for different reasons, crushed their creativity. And I think for this band, it was the hits that they had in the 90s that completely changed what their expectations were. I think it distorted Steven Tyler's uh, pursuits and um, goals. And as you you know, eventually becomes an American Idol judge and does a tries to create a country career and like I don't know he's chasing something that the rest of the band doesn't care about and uh, I think just creatively it's kind of sapped them and you know music from another dimension compared to Van Halen's different kind of truth there's no comparison I mean the Van Halen record is much better than this that right. Aerosmith record and yeah. I just think creatively they're they're kind of done I would love for. You know, Steven Tyler and Brad Whitford the, to take control of the band and just do a, you know, a kick, kick ass classic Aerosmith record. But I think Steven Tyler just, I don't know, can't do it. Like he's just not into that. It's not what he's motivated, motivated by. So I think, yeah, I mean, creatively, it kind of killed them, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. There's two albums in the 2000s so far of new material. Two. Mm-hmm. That's it. <laughs> in two decades, where we are almost through two albums yeah that's that's uh you know you van halen is the is the comparison i think there because at least you know i mentioned metallic earlier but metallic is still it might take longer but they're still putting out music yes. still kind of challenging themselves yep. from here and here and there you don't hear metallica do the well people don't buy records anymore so we're not going to make music it's like you're a fucking band like you should be driven to make music regardless of if it's going to make money or not. <laughs> you know, right. like if that's not, if that's what you're making a decision on, whether you're going to be creatively inspired, like you're done. I don't want to hear anything about it. So yeah, I mean, good on them. I don't, you know, love everything they've done, but they are definitely motivated to continue to make music the way that they want to make it. Uh, Aerosmith, not so much. Right. And, and Aerosmith is doing their residency next year. So I'm going to be in Vegas. That's like their like 50th anniversary. So I'm going to be really curious to see sort of what they do. Mm. I bet there'll be lots of horns. Man. (laughs) (laughs) Man, I'm trying to think like Tom Hamilton's had some serious health issues. Yeah, he really has. Wow. That's amazing that he's going to be able to still play. I mean, he had cancer for a while. I mean, good for that. That's, I mean, that's, that's remarkable though. I mean, think about that. If they, when they do this residency, it is the original band, you know, it's all yeah. five original guys. That is unheard of. True. And the, with all of the substances they put in their body, that they're all still like alive and kicking is also kind of a miracle. Yep. Yep. Oh, well, they're all pickled. They're like, it's like, <laughs> it's, you know, so, all right, that is our, Aerosmith in the 90s episode. I'm going to ask our guests now, what are they up to? Annie, tell us what you're up to now. Where can people find what you're doing? Um, I, They can check me on Twitter um, at Annie Zaleski. 
that's that's pretty much when I share things because I'm I'm working on always like eight things at once. Right. So when something publishes, it'll be on my Twitter. The book that you just contributed to. Ah, yes. Tell so us about it. It's a very cool. It's a very cool book. Um, it's edited by Evelyn McDonald, who did a very. She wrote the book on the Runaways. The, and uh, edited another uh, anthology of writing called Rock She Wrote in the 90s. And it's basically a book of essays written uh, by women about women musicians. And so it's like a big hardcover book. It's perfect for Christmas presents. Um, and so <laughs> I wrote, I actually wrote um, essays on Shirley Manson, uh, Nico Case, and then Lady Gaga and Adele. Excellent. But there's like, it's illustrated. Nice. It's very cool. Now, is that out now or is that something you have to pre-order? It is out now. You can get it at all of your favorite bookstores or uh, Amazon, of course. I don't have any bookstores anymore near me. They have all closed. Oh. So <laughs> That's so sad. So uh, it's all Amazon. Yep, pretty much. Well, I guess you count Half Price Books as a bookstore, but it's uh, not new. So I'll go to Amazon for that. Uh, Joe, tell us what you're up to. I've been on a bit of hiatus from my show lately. Uh, it turns out that raising a toddler is a lot more time-consuming than I thought it would be. Uh, and, which he, and he's at that age now where he's just consumed. It just takes up a lot of uh, time and energy, and uh, so it's hard to get anything done. I've been sitting on a backlog of things I have to get done uh, as uh, reviews and shows, but you can still find all my old stuff and when the new things come out hopefully something soon at uh sit and spin with joe at um youtube instagram facebook and twitter excellent want to remind everyone listening you can go to patreon.com forward slash dig me out to support the podcast for bonus content vote in album review polls and be eligible for our quarterly giveaways and of course if you like what you heard please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at itunes for jam tim and we're out we'll be back next week with another episode of dig me out thanks for listening to support the podcast visit www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, as well as our merchandise store at Zazzle.com. Zazzle.